It is another edition of Making Money. We welcome the financial coach, Ron Hebert, retired portfolio manager, uh, and we see him in person. We don't get a chance to do this very often, given the status of the last couple of years and our geographical locations, but it's good to see you, my friend. It's good to be here. All right. We want to talk about, boy, there's a lot to talk about, Ron, and where do we start? We're in the midst of 2022. We're halfway through the year. There's a lot has gone on this year. And, and you know, reflecting on the markets, reflecting on society in general. Have we learned anything through all of this? You know, what I like to do, and I find that this helps me to focus on the big picture, because when you're investing, if you look at the big picture first, it helps you understand the microeconomic stuff if you look at the macro stuff first. So I like to sit down about every six months and think about the most important issues the market has taught or what we can learn from the market anyways. And I find it helps me to clarify my thinking and avoid future mistakes and allows me to make adjustments to my portfolio strategy. Because long gone are the days where you can just do the same thing over and over and over and over again and expect good results. Because times are so tumultuous and, and things are moving much faster than they've ever gone before, I find it just very helpful to sit down with a pen and paper or computer and just write out what the big trends are and where they're going and what I can learn from all this. And, you know, as we are talking about here, this just helps me as I go into the next half of the year to adjust my portfolio and to adjust my thinking and strategies to more align with the things that are going on. Okay, I think a good place to start here, and there's been a lot of talk, and boy, if you were watching uh, playoff hockey, you kept seeing commercials for cryptocurrencies. They were, they were front and center. Not so much right now, right? Well, you know, even... Even a year ago, you know, if you go to any of the social media sites, uh, they would mock you if you weren't buying crypto. They'd say, well, have fun staying poor. And what people have forgotten along the way is that cryptocurrencies have had huge swings. This is not a buy and hold asset. This is a trading asset. And, you know, you just have to look at the cryptocurrency's flagship, which is Bitcoin. And in the last 11 years, it's had five ferocious bear markets, down 93%, 84%, 74%, 53%. And then the last one that we're currently going through, it's sort of bottomed at 68 And I don't know if that's the bottom. But in the last five bear markets, it's dropped on average 74%. So if you're buying crypto and you have a good move with crypto, don't walk it down the aisle and pretend you're going to marry it forever. Take the profit. That's exactly right, Gord. Take some profits along the way. Do yourself a favor. Cash it in because cryptocurrencies are for trading, not buying and holding. And what we've learned is they certainly don't protect you from inflation. Inflation is seven, eight, nine percent, depends on where you look. And crypto's down 68. Okay, so a, a lesson learned there. And we've talked about this at length on Making Money, Ron. One of the big things that you keep talking about is these things, they have no asset backing them. That's what fundamentals there, right? Yes. And of course, 
the argument is that if you were really smart and you traded the cryptocurrencies, you could have made a lot of money. And I will agree with that. But the crypto world has been turned upside down. And we've seen Luna and TerraUSD and some of these other, not only cryptocurrencies, but these places that are depositories and holders of cryptocurrency, they've been going bankrupt. And one of the reasons is their, their losses just raise questions about the real value of an asset that is backed by nothing but the faith of the holder. Now, for years, the crypto crowd looked down their noses if you had a Canadian uh, loony or a toonie or you had any government-issued currencies. But one of the advantages of a government-issued currency is they can raise taxes to back up the value of the currency. Whereas with crypto, sure, they say that cryptocurrencies will only issue so many, but they'll only issue so many of one currency. But you look out across the landscape, and there's over 9,000 cryptocurrencies, and there's more every day. They're flooding the market with this stuff. And essentially, you've got an asset that doesn't have anything backing it up. It doesn't have earnings. It doesn't have sales. It doesn't have any assets behind it. And one thing you learn is that investments that aren't backstopped by assets or sales or earnings, they can vaporize right before your eyes. And that's what we're seeing happen. Okay, let's talk about the 500-pound uh, elephant in the room or 1,000-pound or 5,000-pound, whatever number you want to put on it, inflation. Uh, we had been talking about that for the last year and a half, Ron, that with all of the money that was being printed and being spent and thrown around, inflation had to rear its head, and now it has, and it's just chugging right along. It's a real risk, isn't it? Very much so. It's, and the reason it's such a risk is that it erodes your buying power. So, you know, we haven't had inflation in Canada in 40 years. So, you know, old guys like you and me, we've, we've experienced. This. We've seen oh, this show. Oh, you know, this is not our first rodeo with inflation. And we've seen what it can do to savings accounts. We can see how if you're retired, it erodes your buying power. We can see all the negatives. And, you know, if you go to a place like Argentina, for example, their last 10-year bout with inflation, 40,000 pesos at the beginning of the inflationary period would have bought you a fairly decent middle-class home. At the end of the decade, that 40,000 pesos eroded the buying power of the peso so much in that country that you were lucky with those 40,000 pesos if you could have bought a necktie. So the lesson here is that when you're calculating your returns, you have to calculate in the effect that inflation is having on your buying power. So unless you make 5% plus on your money last year, you're going backwards. And after tax, because tax for a lot of people, with all the hidden taxes, takes up about half of your income. So after tax, you needed about 10% to break even. And, you know, when you're getting 1% or 2% in a savings account, frankly, you're going backwards by about 8%. So it, it's very, very difficult uh, to go ahead and you have to adjust your thinking about how you're going to invest because inflation is a big factor and it wasn't before. Okay, and tied into this, Ron, is uh, you know recently we've had some pretty 
significant bumps in interest rates. We've had a couple of half-point rises, a full-point rise from the Bank of Canada not that long ago. And and I don't know, I, I can't see them going back down again anytime soon, right? We've learned about the interest rate cycle again. And here as well, the last time we had interest rates at 5%, I think was back in 2006. So, you know, we're looking at 16 years ago and many of today's current investors don't have any realization how rising interest rates can affect the, the markets. And typically, when interest rate cycles were, were more uh, prevalent, you'd see them more often, the prevailing advice was don't fight the Fed. In other words, don't do a lot of investing when interest rates are going up. Do your investing when rates peak and they start going back down because when interest rates going up, you usually have a recession. So the lesson here is learn that the interest rate cycle is not dead by any stretch of the imagination. And this means you invest heavily when central banks are stimulating growth and lowering interest rates, and you do your selling when they're putting the economic brakes on and raising rates. You know, I saw something uh, recently on social media, it was a little, a little clip, uh, and it, it pertained to the United States economy. And, the, and this guy was saying, look, a recession, an indicator of a recession is two negative quarters in a row. And July 1st would have been the start of the third quarter. And he said, we are in a recession, but nobody's going to talk about it until the first quarter of 2023. What, what are your thoughts on that? I definitely think that we're in a recession. I mean, when you look at how um, buying power has eroded, interest rates have gone up, so it's costing people more. Uh, you have fuel costs, which are pervasive across the economy. People are spending hundreds of dollars a month more to drive their cars. And you talk to small business people, and I've had the advantage because I've been in business for 45 years, that I'm always talking to business people. And a lot of them are telling me that they're just not seeing the volume of business that they had before. And typically, that is one of the symptoms of recession. So I actually think we've been in recession uh, since probably early in the year. And typically it's two quarters or even three quarters out before governments look back at the statistics that um, they confirm that you've been in a recession. So often we're in a recession for six to nine months before anybody's even talking about it. And I fully suspect that we're there. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the importance of saving and not just earning. People with big paychecks are living paycheck to paycheck, aren't they? Some of the statistics I find shocking, like one third of Americans earning at least 250,000 annually. That's about 300, that's about a third of a million a year in Canadian dollars are living paycheck to paycheck. And you take a look at the millennials and they're not doing any better. Uh, more than half of millennials that are earning the four times average salary have little or nothing left at the end of the month. And of course, we've always looked at it being in kind of a quasi-socialistic society that governments will always be there to bail us out. Well, when you look at the massive amounts of debt that governments are taking on, and you also look at the fact that interest rates are going up, so every time that debt rolls over, they're not rolling it over again at half a percent or 1%. They're rolling it over at 3 or 4 or 
And of course, that means that the service costs and all this debt are going up amazingly. So will the governments, with more of their cash flows having to go out to support the debt that they already have on the books, how much room do they have to support all the social expenditures or the safety nets? So I think it's really important here that people start thinking about saving for themselves. You know, when the rainy day comes, maybe the government isn't going to be there in the same way it was able to be there between 2020 and 2022 in the pandemic. And that you're going to have to be more dependent on your own resources to get by. And so, you know, it just emphasizes the fact that you can't depend on the government to bail you out in every circumstance. You've got to depend on yourself, which means that people have to get a lot smarter about how they manage their money, especially making sure that every month they're able to set some aside in savings. Yeah, if you, I don't know, my math is not what it used to be. I'd don't have to worry about numbers too much anymore. I don't pay as much attention, but I think we're nearing a trillion dollars in national debt. You get a 1% rise in interest rates, it's like another, what, $100 billion to service or something? Or it's, it's, a, it's an astronomical number. Yeah. And governments have to come up with that cash from somewhere, and guess who pays? Yeah. Uh, so let's talk about these problems that we have. Are they unsolvable, Ron? Because sometimes people get that impression that we're never going to see our way out of this. Well, you remember, Gord, this will date us again, but you remember the Club of Rome, don't you? Oh, yeah. And of course, what the Club of Rome did was they would come out with these, uh, they had this clock that was at, I think, two minutes to midnight. And they focused on all the specific scenarios that, and whether we'd be able to solve them or not, uh, food, famine, overpopulation, pollution, nuclear uh, wars, currencies, debt. They looked at all these things. And of course, if all you did was read the negative over the years, you would never invest in anything. You know, the Club of Rome said that we were, by 2000, you know, mid-century uh, here, where we'd be all starving to death. Well, the, the revolution in agriculture production change that. They also said that overpopulation was one of our biggest risks. And of course, 70 years ago, the global birth rate was 5.1 babies per thousand women. That was back in 1952. Today, that number has fallen to 2.4 children per thousand years. Break even where the population doesn't increase or the problem population doesn't decrease is 2.1 children per thousand. So at 2.4, we're almost there. And if you listen to Elon Musk, one of his predictions is that we could have a literally population decline as more and more women get educated, more and more women move into the workforce, more and more women decide that, or more and more families decide that the cost of having children is just too much. So. In the past, if you looked at all the insolvable problems uh, that have appeared in our lifetime, you could be intimidated into not doing anything, hiding under a bed, putting your, your thumb in your mouth, curling up in a fetal position, and closing the blinds. But some of the problems, in fact, many of the problems we've had, we've been able to resolve. 
And so you, if you get caught up reading the literature, and there's just so much doomsday stuff out there, you will very likely not be able to grow your portfolio enough to be able to have an, uh, the resources you need at retirement to get by. So one of the things you've got to do is realize that unsolvable problems have a way of working themselves out. And as a result, uh, things just don't go down forever. Uh, of course, you have recessions, uh, you have currency problems, you have all the problems we have. But in many times, they work themselves out. And because they do, over the years, markets continually work their way higher. And as a result, they've given people the kind of returns they've needed to be able to, to have the wealth they've uh, wanted and needed at retirement to live happy, healthy, resourceful lives. You know, over the years, Ron, I think a lot of people had this thought in their mind, well, when times get tough and inflation starts going up, I'll just, I'll get gold, I'll buy gold. And that's not necessarily the hedge that it used to be, is it? Well, what people forget is, uh, like you say, people think that political instability, inflation, currency basement, all the basic ingredients are there to make gold go up. But the one factor that they haven't included in their equation is that a strong U.S. dollar uh, competes with gold as a safe haven asset. And so when the U.S. dollar is strong, uh, investors flock to the U.S. greenback in, instead of gold for two reasons. The first is that it's easier and less expensive to buy or sell paper currency than it is gold. And secondly is interest rates. Right now, you can go and put your currency to work at a bank, and you're going to get 2 3 4 in some cases, even 5%. Where with gold, if you've got a lot of it, you're going to have to store it, and that's going to cost you anything, and it doesn't earn anything. So gold is not the only asset that's done well during inflationary periods, and you need a falling U.S. dollar for gold to really do well. In fact, other assets, if you look at past inflation cycles, like energy or copper, over even a 100-year period, uh, they've outperformed gold by a lot. And they've also protected you against inflation. So in gold and inflation are kind of linked at the hip, but it's, gold is not the only asset that will help you or protect you in times of trouble. And there are times where even gold isn't going to go up because the U.S. dollar is soaring like today, and that's why gold is weak. Okay, let's talk a little bit about, uh, you know, some of the, the conflict that's going on in the world. The war in Ukraine continues. When that all started... Uh, countries right across the globe jumped on all of a sudden. Let's embargo the Russians. We'll embargo them out of this. Hasn't worked, has it? Unfortunately, we take Russia to be stupid. And of course, Putin made some very strategic mistakes when he attacked the Ukraine. And as a result, we look at him as an adversary that's just going to fold and uh, if we put embargoes against them, it's going to bring Russia to its knees, and they're going to come crawling back to us asking to take the embargoes off. Well, take a look at their currency. Five months in, we see that these embargoes have been hurting Putin and his cronings, but it's far from catastrophic. The ruble after an initial drop of 30%, is trading right back at its pre-invasion highs, and Russia's recession is way less than we thought it would be. 
Russia's finding ways to get their product to market. They're selling at a discount price, but some of the Arab countries, for example, Saudi Arabia is a good one, they're taking Russian oil, they're burning it domestically, or using it domestically for heating, for chemicals, for all those things, and they're exporting way more of their oil. So it, what the Western world is, is they're buying more Saudi oil, which is uh, being replaced by Russian oil domestically, so they've got more that can go out in the market. The amount of oil that's out there hasn't changed at all. They're moving oil from one tanker to another. Uh, countries that are producing it are buying it at a discount and then selling their own oil on the market. So we think that we're just absolutely crushing them. But Russia is making about $970 million a day from its oil exports, and the war in Ukraine is costing them $876 million. And so the West has overinflated their sense of importance and power. And if you look at Cuba, we've embargoed them for, what, 80 years, 70 years now? Uh, we've tried to embargo Iran. Uh, Korea has been on the blacklist since the 1950s, and it hasn't worked. All we've done is create supply shortages and inflation. And so sanctions can backfire and end up being the big black swan event that pushes us into stagnation and recession. And this could end up hurting us more economically than it's hurting them. So when you get governments throwing out uh, sanctions and trying to punish someone else, often it's hurting investors more domestically than it's hurting the other country. And so you've got to be very careful when you see embargoes coming on. Like in this case, <clears throat> it's hurt. It, wheat prices have gone up. Uh, you've had steel. You've had aluminum. You've had, you've had coal. You've had oil and gas. And all this is certainly affecting, um, is being affected by the war. Uh, Germany gets a third of its, of its uh, fossil fuels from Russia. And if Russia shut them down this winter, um, Germany would not only go into recession, it would go into depression. So the idea that you can just throw these things around with a lot of, without a lot of afterthought, um, as an investor, you've got to really weigh the consequences of, of what they're doing and, and adjust your portfolio accordingly because politicians are always going to tell you how wonderful and how powerful they are. But in a lot of cases, they just aren't. We've also learned that central bankers aren't financial wizards. <laughs> they, uh, boy, we've talked about this ad infinitum too. They backed themselves into a corner. And, and this reckless money printing is just out of control, right? Well, you've got central bankers right now find themselves boxed in a corner. If they raise interest rates too much, an over-indebted consumer, who's pretty much stretched the limit, would face higher payments. And this would also hurt governments who are head over heels in red ink. And so if rates go up, the consumer, corporations, individuals are going to find that these higher interest payments are going to cause a recession. So on the other hand, if they aren't aggressive enough raising rates, inflation will continue to climb. And people's buying power is going to be eroded every year. And that's, that hurts especially people who are on a fixed income and those who are barely able to make ends meet as it is. And, of course, 
for the last six months, uh, central bankers are saying, well, don't worry about inflation. It's transitory. It's going to be here, but then it's going to be gone. And, and uh, we're not going to raise rates that much because, frankly, it's not going to be a big deal. Well, if you go back and look at virtually every recession and meltdown we've had over the last 30 or 40 years, central bankers have been there scratching their heads trying to figure out what's going along, going on just like the rest of us. So when you're in a situation like this where there's no good options, if you raise rates, it's going to cause a recession. If you don't, you're going to have stagflation. Well, there's not a lot of great options, and so don't believe the party line, what politicians and central bankers tell you. If you're investing, you've got to be a little cynical. You've got to take prudent steps to protect yourself against inflation, rising interest rates, and recessions. And the last people to tell you we're in economic trouble are going to be the politicians and central bankers. Okay, we talked about, about the big money print. I mean, the numbers are staggering there, aren't they? Like when you look historically how much money used to be in circulation as opposed to how much is in circulation now. Well, the money supply has gone up by a factor of five in the last 20 years. And central bankers and politicians say there's nothing to worry about. Rising prices are only a short-term problem and will disappear in a year. Well, uh, they're going to end up eating their worlds. Unfortunately, we've heard all this before. So take appropriate steps to protect yourself against inflation. You know, you want to have some real estate. You want to have some commodities. You want to have some real return bonds, things that do well in times of inflation. And don't listen to the white noise or background noise of everybody telling you, no, 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 it's going to be just fine. Because, frankly, they've never called it in the past, and I have uh, doubts whether they're going to be able to or have the tools anywhere in my lifetime to be able to call it in the future. Okay, we should just digress to the war a little bit in, in the Ukraine. They, they don't last 90 minutes like in a movie, right? They can yeah. go on for a long time. Yeah, you go to a movie and by the time you've, you've got the bottom of your pail of popcorn, uh, it's time to go home. Well, and uh, people have been investing accordingly, but investors who think the Ukraine-Russian war will end quickly should look at history. The civil strife in Syria had went on for 11 years. Russia took nine years to end their conflict in Chechnya and a decade to really extract themselves from Afghanistan. The U.S. was in Afghanistan for two decades or more, and they were in Vietnam for, for 10 years, and they literally are still in Iraq and haven't figured out how to get themselves out. So even if Russia limits itself to conquering only the Donbass and eastern part of Ukraine, Western sanctions don't look like they're going to end anytime soon. And the result is that the consequences could last for years or even decades, and companies exposed to broken supply chains can suffer earnings disruptions and stock prices that uh, will see setbacks and last a very long period of time. So as an investor, you got to be looking at this stuff. Uh, we got a couple more here to get through quickly, Ron. Have we learned anything about investing in non-democratic countries? There's always risk attached there. And a good example is some of the mining companies where, you know, in the last couple of years, we've seen in New Guinea, for example, has forced Barrick to give up 50% interest in their gold mine. Kyrgyzstan has seized Sentara's gold-producing assets in that country. And so not only with mining stocks, but because of the embargoes, everything has got rearranged. And so the onus is on us, like never before, to look not only what we're investing in, but where we're investing. 
and make sure that where you've got your investments is in a jurisdiction that's safe. And I don't want to get branded a dinosaur for saying this, but uh, I'm completely convinced oil is far from dead. Oh, um, if, if, you, if you look at what they're able to do with renewables, I mean, renewables are on their way to eventually uh, becoming the biggest player in the energy universe. But, you know, we increase the amount of total consumption of renewables in our total energy menu by 1% to 2% a year. So anybody who thinks that, they, that renewables are just going to end, um, they just aren't doing the math. You know, in fact, uh, next year, it looks like we'll have the highest amount of barrels per day consumed the world has ever seen. So, you know, I mean, that is slowing down and renewables are slowly becoming a bigger part of the pie. But it's not going to happen immediately. And trends often take much longer to play out than anyone can imagine. And this is certainly true with energy. Okay, we've talked a lot about ESG. It's uh, not been in a favorable light of late. And there's a good reason for that because, frankly, they need to spend some time figuring out how to apply this, this, many of these moonbeam aspirations they have. CIBC really sent shockwaves through the ESG universe uh, when they found that ESG funds had twice the exposure to Russian oil and gas as they did Canadian ones at the end of the 2021. Now, you've got to ask yourself a question. Even if you're cynical about Canada, do you actually believe that Russian energy companies are paragons of goodness and compared to us? I don't think so. Thankfully, the public is starting to catch on to this virtue charade, and funding for ESG portfolios is down 50% in the first couple of months of 2022. And hype is not an investment strategy. Uh, make sure there's real facts backing something up before you jump in, especially with ESG. And the final lesson that I think we've learned here is that higher energy prices take a wrecking ball to the economy. All you have to do is go to the grocery store. <laughs> oh, totally. Uh, and people forget that the energy industry has feelers throughout the entire economy because everything has to be moved. Every, the, our production of food, our production of metals, our production of, of just about everything that we consume requires energy. And most of that energy comes from fossil fuels to be able to produce it. So... If you look back over the last half century and the, all the recessions, except for one, that was 2020, if we have a big run-up in energy prices, you have a recession. It's just that simple. So the way to protect yourself from the inflationary effects of rising energy prices and recessions is to be, A, a little more conservative, and to B, to get some exposure to energy stocks. And if you're concerned about doing that, well, you know, personally, I've owned pipelines, which are more conservative. They pay good dividends. And uh, they allow you to uh, take advantage of when energy spikes, because usually when energy is spiking and everything else is going in the tank, one of the few things that's doing well at the time is energy. And that's certainly the case now. So there you go. Some lessons learned in 2022 thus far. Some of them kind of harsh lessons, and we're not out of the woods yet. Are you at all optimistic, Ron, or are you leaning a little more to the pessimistic side right now? 
Well, the interesting thing is that markets focus six months ahead of time. And so if we're actually in a recession, and, you know, I think this recession could take a while because recessions are correcting mechanisms. And all the imbalances are created when too much money is pumped into the system. That usually gets corrected in a recession. So I see, you know, I see a recession coming, but I also, from my years of experience managing money, when I see a recession, I prefer to spell it as opportunity. And you often get some of the best opportunities because the things that you want to own are never cheap, but often you get outstanding bargains when you get things pulled back. And certainly with interest rates, this will be the best time in 16 years as we see how inflation pays out, plays out and how high interest rates go to lock in with higher yields. I was looking just uh, this morning and you can get uh, three-year GICs at four and a half percent. I mean, we haven't seen that for 14, 15 years. So uh, the opportunities are going to be there. So yeah, we're going to face some tough times, but if you're smart, your head's up and you're paying attention, this could be the best opportunity we've had in a decade or since 2006, 2000, or seven to nine uh, to buy things at really good prices. So uh, pay attention. There's lots going to be unfolding here over the next uh, next six months, but um, you're going to have seven of the best opportunities you've had in decades to buy things at good prices. So there you go. Some sage advice from the financial coach, Ron Hebert. Remember, if you have a question about something we covered today or a suggestion for a show, we welcome them. Get to us through our website at letsmakemoney.ca or through the cfcw.com portal where the show was hosted. We will be back again next week with another edition of Making Money. On behalf of the financial coach, Ron Hebert, I'm Gord Whitehead. Thanks for joining us. The information presented is derived from sources believed to be reliable. This material is presented for information purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Before acting on any investment information, a person should seek advice from an investment professional. The presenters may or may not hold positions in the securities discussed on this show and will not be responsible for any losses sustained from acting on this information.